0: Uh, Thank you, everybody, for uh, taking the time to join us here online. Uh, Those of you who are just tuning in uh, just because you saw a link on Facebook or something, welcome. We welcome you here. And thank you for your time as well. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Brad. I'm one of the elders here at Sunrise Church. Um, My wife texted me and said to say hello to... All of my kids to Violet who's sitting on the couch <laughs> and to all the other kids who are sitting patiently. I know they've been spending the entire week in front of screens with online school this week so thank you. Be patient. We thank you for your patience kids. So my message today is coming from uh, the gospel of Mark chapter 1 verses 4 to 11. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So as has been said over and over and over again, everyone's last year was all kind of thrown into disarray and with uh, being removed with the ability of going places, I think a lot of us have had our TV habits changed quite a bit. Um, some people have been watching a whole lot more TV. Um, I know that there were people in April and May that was going around and say, well, I finished Netflix. What do I do next? So, If you've had extra time for TV, um, if it was me, I I don't really have extra time. Usually I watch about an hour, hour and a half, maybe in the evenings after all the kids are in bed. But if it was up to me, I would be watching Marvel movies. I would be watching John Wick, watching him kick butt. Um, I'd be watching uh, sci-fi movies like Star Trek and Star Wars and things like that, spy movies. But every once in a while, um, my wife will have uh, a selection that she would like to watch. Um, And they're usually, I shouldn't say usually, they are, they are always good. They turn out to be good series, good movies. Um, So husbands, men, sometimes relinquish the control of the remote control. Your wives have good ideas too. So we've recently got into uh, watching The Crown on Netflix, um, quick show of hands of everyone who's, who's been watching The Crown. Okay, there's no hands here, but I see everyone out there in, at home. Your hands are raised. Thank you for participating. So we've, uh, we kind of watch one episode a night every so often. And there's one episode in particular in season three, um, episode seven. Um, it's actually called Moondust. And we watched this. I think it was shortly after the New Year. It might have been even before, in between Christmas and New Year's. And there was something in, the, in this, in this storyline that just caught me. Like, I was preparing for this message, um, and there was something in the storyline that really seemed appropriate for, for this time of year. So let me give you a quick synopsis of it. So it's 1969 uh, in the UK. Prince Philip, um, who is the Queen Elizabeth II's husband, uh, he is 48 years old. And, I mean, he's done, he has everything. He has no needs, no wants. He's the royal Admiral of the royal navy. Uh, he is a pilot. He's been, he has everything he wants. And he's coming to this kind of midlife crisis. Like, everything that he does just seems to be so tedious, like he's going to factory openings of denture clinics or denture factories and doing award ceremonies for the Concrete Foundation Society of of the UK. And everything just seems like it's so droll, so, so boring. So he's in this kind of midlife crisis. And he starts feeling this restlessness um, with his life and and, and the accomplishments that he's done up to this point. Just feels like he hasn't done anything worthwhile. So in July of 1969, the US succeeded in the monumental achievement of sending men to the moon on uh, aboard Apollo 11. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. So Philip's state of mind at this time, it just caused him to become completely absorbed with the mission to the moon. He was staying up late at night to watch all the, all the, uh, the updates and all the briefings and things like that. Um, he was studying up on the technical aspects of the, of the mission. Being a pilot himself, he had some idea of what it was to fly. Um, and he had this desire for, just, for more out of his life. And seeing these three men accomplishing what has up until that point of time been considered impossible, it just stirs him to do something, to action, and he, he frequently comments throughout the throughout the episode, "Extraordinary! What men! What courage!" So earlier in, in the episode, um, Prince Philip is approached by the new dean or the priest of Saint George's Chapel of Windsor Castle, and there's a whole bunch of buildings that were being not being used on the premises, and he asked to to be able to use one of the buildings to set up a a kind of retreat for, for ministers who were just kind of lost their way, kind of flailing. So this Robin Wood, Dean Robin Woods, he comes to him and he says, he was kind of explaining why he wanted to do this. And he said, you get to a certain age and you get to a ceiling, a crisis, if you will. You lose perspective and you get into a slump. The idyllic setting of these buildings would be a great place for priests to come and recharge, reflect, and raise their game. And Philip responds by saying, by doing what? And Wood says, by talking, by reading, by thinking. And Philip says, responds this way. He says, may I suggest that your concept is flawed? You don't raise your game by talking or thinking. You raise your game through action, like this. And he slams his finger on, the, on his newspaper of the, of the moon mission. He says, like this, this is how you get out of a slump. So, watching this episode, it reminded me of a quote that JFK, John F. Kennedy, gave at that time. And he says this, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Now, there's this natural inclination in all of humanity to do something, to contribute, to rise to the challenge, to save ourselves, to find worth, to find value, to find meaning in the things that we do, the things we possess, the things that we accomplish, to find significance and security in our success and not in our failures. And in this episode, a little bit later on, Prince Philip is invited by the dean to meet with some of the priests who had come to, to uh, find respite at St. George's house, which was what it became known as. And one of the men tells him what brought him here. And this priest says, I decided to give myself a score, and I felt I only merited a fail. I allowed myself to dream that advancing age would bring new revelations, insight, a deepening of my faith a growing flock. But instead, I find myself in a small rural parish with a dwindling congregation, lowering attendance. And Philip says to this group of men in response, I'll tell you what I think. I've never heard such a load of pretentious, self-piteous nonsense. What you need to do is get off your backsides, get out into the world, and bloody well do something. That is why you're all so so lost, I believe that there is an imperative within man, all men, to make a mark. Action is what defines us. Action, not suffering. Let me ask you this, he continues. Do you think those astronauts up there are catatonic like you? Of course not. They're too busy achieving something spectacular. And as a result, they are at one with the world, at one with their god, and happy. That's my advice. Model yourself on men of action, like Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins. These men score A triple plus. Now, that's the message that you hear from the world, from the culture. Get out and do it. You're the one who controls your destiny. It's what's inside you that drives your happiness, that drives your attitude. Now, just think about the positive things. And we often hear this message from within the Christian world, too. All you have to do is change the names. Dare to be a Daniel. Slay the giants in your life like David. Be like Joseph. Don't be a Doubting Thomas. And in this Crown episode, there was a reporter that, on the television that made the statement regarding the mission to the moon. He said this. This is a powerful reminder of our capacity for greatness as a species, not simply the engineering triumph represented here today, but the triumph of human ambition, the the desire to reach, quite literally, for the stars. And this desire that we all have is not something that is foreign to anyone. We all have found that there is something that isn't quite right under the sun, as the writer in Ecclesiastes says. We naturally long for this rightness, this enoughness, for rest, Underneath this drive for personal improvement, consciously unaware of, underneath this drive for personal betterment is an instinct that most of us are unaware of. It's this instinct to get love, to get approval, the instinct to get respect, the instinct to justify our existence by who we are and what we can become, by what other people think of us and what we think of ourselves, what kind of legacy we can leave behind, and so on now the people call this performancism and it's this treadmill existence and it's it's the mindset that equates our identity and our value directly with our performance so how i look how intelligent i am how many kids how my kids turn out what people think of me what i think of myself is synonymous or becomes synonymous it becomes equated to my worth my value as a human being And to all of us, performances, success equals life, and failure equals death. Now, this time of year, particularly, seems to really bring out this drive in everyone. The desire to reach for the stars, as it were. And after a steamroller of a year that we've all been through, I think this desire for improvement, for change, has exponentially increased. And in my experience in 41 years, this new year, more than any other, seems to have had this strong expectation of hope foisted upon it. There's got to be a light at the end of the tunnel. I can't take another year of this. Now, I know that we are all different and we have varying experiences, and and some of us may not have felt like last year was a complete write-off. But sociologists have defined this thing called a negativity bias, where if you had a thousand good comments coming to you and, and approval and praises, if you were to get one single thing that was negative, your mind would just dwell on that. It would eat at you. It would keep you up at night. You would think, how, how, can, I, how can I have done that? I, I couldn't have offended someone or, or something like that. So even if 2020 has not hit you as hard as it has others, There's inevitably something that has been grinding away against every single one of us to drag us to the pit of despond, as John Bunyan describes it in Pilgrim's Progress, to drive us to despair, to hopelessness. It may be a whole plethora of things, or it could be one thing, the thing that keeps you up at night, that takes up so much of your time and your energy and your thoughts. It could be lost income, lost loved ones, Financial downturns, bad decisions, political unrest, scientific confusion, distraction or a lack of distraction, regret, and just plain boredom have all been taking a toll on us. Marked increases in suicide rates, increases in antidepressant prescriptions, increases in alcohol and drug consumption, domestic disturbances and abuse, the rise of more and more conspiracy theories, and just the general cultural milieu today are the obvious signs of the general rise of unrest, of anxiety, and weariness that we're all feeling. Now, it could be politically, regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum. It could be materially, that you found that you're lacking or that you have too much. It could be relationally, that you've spent too little time with your extended family or, or with your friends. Or it could, perhaps it could be that you've spent too much time with your, friend, with your friends or your immediate family. The hardship of discovering different perspectives. It could be personally, it could be your physical health, it could be your mental health, or it could even be spiritually, feeling like that you're not doing enough, like you're not making a difference, like you're not praying enough, or, or whatever. And maybe it just feels completely, like you completely gave up and wasted a, a whole year of your life. You just, you never seized the day, you never took the time, never took the opportunity. And as a result, there's in the air this time of year, this drive for personal betterment, for personal improvement. We resolve to turn over a new leaf, and this year, we're going to be serious about it. This time, we're really going to try, and we're not going to quit, come hell or high water. We promise ourselves that we're going to quit bad habits and start good ones. We're gonna drink a little less and eat more healthy. We're not gonna take people for gr- or life for granted anymore. Carpe diem, seize the day. We'll take more risk, we'll live more. We'll, we're gonna get in shape, we'll be more disciplined, we'll eat better, we'll be more content, we'll be more intentional. We're gonna be better husbands and wives and mothers and fathers. We're gonna serve more, plan more, read more, pray more, give more, whatever. Pay attention around you. Whatever suggests to you that you need to do more, no more messing around. Now, undoubtedly, some of you have made New Year's resolutions or aspirations or goals, if you prefer, and statistically, most of you have already failed or abandoned those New Year's resolutions. Um, Because as you may or may not know, January 12th is statistically the day when most uh, people's New Year's resolutions are are abandoned. So in the case that you are still going strong, just hold on for two more days. And I, I say try. Seriously try. You might make some great strides this year. There may be some areas in your life that you'd like to make improvements in over the next 12 months. And perhaps rightly so. But my admonition to you is this. Don't be surprised if in a week or in a year from now, you've fallen short. You've taken a score of your life and you find that you only merit a fail. Just like you did last year and the year before that and the year before that. For those who try and try, year after year, again and again, to get better and better, only to take three steps forward and two steps back. To take one step forward and then three steps back. I have good news for you. You are in very good company. Everyone is just like you. There are no exceptions. Even Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, the Admiral of the Royal Navy, Everybody I have ever talked to in the course of my life sounds just like me and like you. Try and fail, fail and try, try and succeed. Succeed then fail. Every year I get better at some things and I get worse at others. And oftentimes things just stay the same. The most consistent thing about my life that I've found is its inconsistency in so many different ways. And I think that's true of every one of us. In some ways we get better, in some ways we get worse, and in other ways we basically stay the same. And so, back to this crown episode. At one point, Prince Philip is given the opportunity of a lifetime to meet the crew of the Apollo 11 moon landing. The three greatest men in the world in his eyes. Men among men, models of excellence, and examples of people who have got it all together. Imagine being able to meet your heroes face to face. What would you ask? How did you do it? What was it like? Do you have any advice for someone like me? Well, that's exactly what Prince Philip did. And let me tell you, it was an utter disappointment for him. All three men who could handle the rigors of traveling some 384,000 kilometers through space, were all taken ill with the cold on a trip across the Atlantic. When asked about the lunar mission, all they could talk about was how tired they were, how they had no time to do anything, to really think about things and, and take it all in, because of the strict adherence to the mission protocols and to the routines. And the final straw, the astonishment of the astronauts, at a malfunctioning piece of equipment. This was their big story for him, that they heard this knocking and knocking and knocking as they're trying to sleep, and they found out that it was this water cooler. And they said, the greatest engineers in the world design a rocket that takes us to the moon, but they can't even get us a decent water cooler. Later in a discussion with his wife, Queen Elizabeth II, Philip confesses, I don't know what I was thinking. I thought they would be giants, gods. They delivered as astronauts, but they disappointed as human beings. And it's the same thing with anything that you trust in, hope in, other than Jesus. Regardless of who you are or what you do, every single day we all search for meaning and significance in a thousand different things that are smaller than Jesus. Our sin betrays that fact daily. The problem is that nothing less than Jesus is able to bear the weight of our hopes and our expectations and our needs. There's a saying that says, never meet your idols, they'll always disappoint you. And that's true of every kind of idol, not just the human ones, not just the wooden metal ones that we so often imagine when we hear of idols, the carved images that primitive tribes bow down to. No, not just the material ones, but the immaterial ones as well. Success, status, relationships, independence, accomplishments, what people think of you, what you think of yourself, the you that you ought to be. The problem that you and I have, though, is that, as John Calvin has said, our hearts are idol-making factories, and that's not going to change this side of heaven. Robert Capon once said, The greatest temptation is to think that it is by further, better, and more aggressive living that we can find life. So at this point, you're probably thinking, how in the world did he get this from Mark chapter 1, from Jesus' baptism? Now, I want to try and bring that all together for you, because sometimes my mind works a little funny. When I see something, something else clicks, and then that clicks, and... This is where I got it from. So, as I was preparing for this, as I knew that I was going to be speaking today, generally, I, uh, I first look to to the uh, to the common lectionary, just to see uh, to maybe find a starting point in there. Um, the lectionary, if you don't know, is a collection of of scripture readings that correspond to the seasons of the church: to Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, the Holy Week, Easter, and Pentecost. They're typically used in liturgical churches. Um, and we're, at Sunrise, we're not a liturgical church. Um, usually, typically, it's Lutherans, Episcopals, Anglicans, Catholic, and Orthodox churches that, that are liturgical. And we don't necessarily follow the structured, formal tradition of corporate worship that, that those traditions do. But the, the text of the gospel reading for today was Mark chapter 1. Now the, the readings, there's usually an Old Testament reading, a Psalm reading, a New Testament reading, and a Gospel reading. So today, actually on, on January 6th, uh, is the start of Epiphany. And Epiphany, you might not have heard of it, it's from the Greek word Epiphaneia, which means manifestation. And specifically, in the Christian tradition, it's the manifestation of Jesus incarnate, of Jesus in the flesh. And it's the season of the church observed from January 6th to Ash Wednesday, just before Lent, coming into Easter. And Jesus' baptism, which is recorded in all four of the Gospels, is always the first Sunday after January 6th. Now many theologians have said that Advent, or the Christmas season, begins in the dark. The entire Bible paints this picture of human brokenness and God breaking in, in the midst of darkness. It starts off in Genesis, in creation, when the earth was formless and void, when there was nothing. God spoke light into the darkness. For Abraham and Sarah, the promised son comes from the deadness of the womb, from the darkness of death, from the deadness of age. In the Exodus, you see the Israelites are oppressed under Egypt for 400 years as slaves. And at the edge of the Red Sea, with no escape possible, in the darkest time, God brings the impossible. In preparation for the birth of Christ, 400 years of silence, of biblical silence, from the nation of Israel being besieged by Assyria in 721 BC and Judah then being captured by Babylon in 587 BC, the coming of Christ, God was preparing the darkness of night for the light of the world to shine upon his people. In John 1, John says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John came as a witness to bear witness about the light, and the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So how did I get here? Well, it's the combination of things. I, as we come into Christmas, my mind typically goes to the darkness of the season and how, it, how the light is breaking into, into the darkness. Obviously, all of the happenings of last year, the things that we're in right now... Um, the dumpster fire, as people have called it, of, of 2020. And then the timing of when I watched this episode of, of The Crown and the message that it portrayed. It all, in my mind, it, it all solidified. It all got brought together. And if you want to, you'll have to watch the episode for yourself if you want to see the absolutely amazing ending to it. Now, there's a lot that could be unpacked in this small section of Scripture. The theological theme of wilderness of baptism of repentance but there's one key thing that I want to that I want to highlight that I think ties everything in to what I've set up to this point you see at this point in Jesus's life he didn't have any followers he was nobody he had no disciples so when he comes from Nazareth to John in the wilderness to be baptized, it's highly unlikely that anyone would have made room for him. It's highly unlikely that the crowds would have parted and he would have gone to the front of the line. And even so, I don't think Jesus is the kind of rescuer that would bypass a lineup of sinners coming to be baptized. He came to be the servant of all, after all. So just imagine the scene there are perhaps dozens or maybe hundreds of people waiting their turn to be baptized by John. Imagine Jesus mingling and talking to all these sinners. What do you think he might have said to these people? Well, it's a good thing you're here. You certainly need it. Some of the people probably just knew him as the son of Joseph, the carpenter. Maybe some were even his friends, people that he grew up with. But finally, It's Jesus' turn, and he comes to the edge of the waters of the Jordan. And John looks up, and he sees him, and he whispers, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus wades in, and John pushes back at first. He says, You should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And Jesus tells him, No, I need you to do this, so that we can fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus crosses his arms, plugs his nose, and John dunks him. Buried. He brings him out. Resurrection. And a voice sounds from the heavens. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Nowhere else in the Bible are those words spoken. No mere man has ever received this commendation in whom I am well pleased." And this is the gospel for us today. In the midst of the darkness that we dwell, in the dull, dreary, day-to-day that so many feel, coming out of a year filled with disappointment, despair, and delusion, Jesus comes into the thick of it. He's with us, Emmanuel, God with us, in the midst of it, and has come to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf, on your behalf. It's Christ for you. So, I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to make improvements in different areas of our lives. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that all of the value and worth and love and acceptance and validation that you long for and try to secure by doing more and trying harder has already been secured for you in Jesus. Don't put your trust in princes or a son of man in whom there is no salvation, Psalm 146 tells us. Don't put your trust in finances or success or your job security or relationships or your reputation or political leaders. There is no salvation in those things. Look to Jesus for your fulfillment. Look to him as the hope of a new year, and your only hope in life. The gospel is good news because it announces that our justification comes from God. Our righteousness, 100% of it, comes to us freely in Jesus, who walks with us through the muck and the mire, the hard times and the good times of life so that we can be free from the burden of justifying ourselves, free from trying to get a righteousness of our own. Aren't we told in Isaiah that all of our righteousness is like a filthy rag anyhow? None of it even counts towards your worth, your value, your significance, your salvation, because you already have an overflowing cup. All that you need is in Jesus, in whom we all receive the commendation This is my son and my daughter in whom I am well pleased. I love you all more than you know. Amen.